Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From The Guardian, in a world-first discovery, a live worm was found in an Australian woman's brain. Ooh. Yeah, content warning for this one. Yeah. Well, you know, it's also a scientific breakthrough of sorts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it broke through something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey. Exactly. Yeah, listen, if you have been complaining of forgetfulness and depression, you may want to see a doctor. Oh, it could no. be something as benign as, you know, mental health issue, or it could be an eight centimeter <gasps> round worm that's normally found in pythons. You know, eight could go either way. That's not yeah. a little worm, that's a big worm. And oh. it was extracted alive. Okay. So otherwise, it had been a fairly regular day on the ward at the Canberra Hospital. A physician, Dr. Sanjaya Senanyuke, got a weird call from a colleague. And they said, oh, my God, you would not believe what I just found in this lady's brain. And <laughs> it's alive and wriggling. I love oh. the idea that physicians call each other up like, dude, you got to check this out. Like <laughs> They do all the time. And in fact, yes, the neurosurgeon, Dr. Hari Priyabandi, had pulled an eight centimeter long parasitic roundworm from her patient, a 64-year-old woman Ooh. from southeastern New South Wales, and she was first admitted to her local hospital in late January 2021. Oh. She had three weeks of abdominal pain, constant dry cough, fever, night sweats, and then a year later, by 2022, her symptoms included forgetfulness, depression, that's what prompted a referral to Canberra Hospital, and an MRI of her brain did in fact reveal abnormalities. So they were like, okay, time to do surgery. Quote, neurosurgeons regularly deal with infections in the brain, but this was a once-in-a-career finding. No one was expecting to find that. <sighs> so... It was a discovery that prompted a team at the hospital to quickly come together and be like, okay, what kind of worm do we got here? And then, more importantly, decide on any further treatment that the patient might require. So, quote, we just went for the textbooks, looking up all the different types of roundworm that could cause neurological invasion and disease. Sadly, their search was fruitless, so they had to recruit outside experts for help. We sent the worm, which was still alive, <laughs> straight to the laboratory of a CSIRO scientist who was very experienced with parasites. He just looked at it and said, oh my goodness, this is Ophidascarus robertsi. Now, that is the Latin name for a roundworm that's usually found in pythons, as in snakes. Wow. So this Canberra hospital patient marks the first case of the parasite being found in humans. Cool. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> it's only the first time, but they didn't say it was the last time. Yeah. <laughs> or the only time. It's just the time that we know of. Yeah. That's I mean, right. her symptoms are so generic. Like, these could be floating around in tons of people and we don't know it. Well, okay. For a little bit of context, environment does have a part to play, at least in this situation. Now, the patient lives near a lake area 
that is inhabited by carpet pythons. So the natural host is living as a neighbor, mm -hmm. right? And despite no direct snake contact, she did often collect native grasses from around the lake to use in cooking. Hmm. So the doctors and scientists involved in her case hypothesize that a python may have shed the parasite via feces onto the grass. Uh. They believe the patient was probably infected with the parasite from transferring the eggs to food or kitchen utensils or just after eating the greens. As far as further treatment after the worm was taken out, yeah, the patient needed to be treated for other larvae that might have invaded other parts of her body, <laughs> like the liver. But because no patient had ever been treated for this parasite before, they were very, very careful. For example, some medications could trigger inflammation, but inflammation can be harmful to organs, including the brain. So they had to administer medications in such a way to counteract any dangerous side effects. Quote, that poor patient, she was so courageous and wonderful. You do not want to be the first patient in the world with a roundworm found in pythons, and we really take our hats off to her. She has been wonderful. Oh, take her hat off. <laughs> yeah. I could have chosen a different... <laughs> that euphemism could have uh, gone for a better analog there. But the patient, she's recovering well, and she's still being regularly monitored. Researchers are exploring whether a pre-existing medical condition that caused her to be immunocompromised mm. may have helped that larva take hold. But at least we now have the case documented in the September edition of the journal Emerging Infectious Diseases, where if this wasn't enough for you, you can read all about it there. So the next time they have to cut out a chunk of someone's skull and find a worm in there, they're like, oh, this old thing. No we, problem. We've got like, precedent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, three quarters of new or emerging infectious diseases in people are in fact coming from animals. Mm -hmm. To be fair, this particular infection does not transmit between people. So the patient's case would not cause a pandemic like COVID-19 or Ebola. But, you know, heads up, the snake and that parasite are found in other parts of the world. So hold on to your hats. <laughs> I feel like they should let her keep the worm as a pet. Like, if it's been alive this whole time, she should get to keep it. Yeah. I'm just imagining Sense8, but it's this woman and seven worms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So we'll stay in the realm of the brain. A little bit more of a positive spin. I mean, I guess having a worm removed is positive, but, you know, <laughs> sure. not having the worm in the first place. So a biotech company says it put dopamine-making cells into people's brains specifically to help treat Parkinson's disease. Oh. And in an important test for stem cell medicine, a biotech company says implants of lab-made neurons introduced into the 12 brains of people with Parkinson's disease appear to be safe and may have reduced symptoms for some of them. Hey. Hmm. Yeah, pretty good news. The added cells should produce the neurotransmitter dopamine, a shortage of which is what produces the devastating symptoms, including problems moving. Claire Hinchcliffe, a neurologist at the University of California, Irvine, who is one of the leaders of the study, says the goal is that they form synapses and talk to other cells as if they were from the same person. The study is one of the largest and most costly tests yet of embryonic stem cell technology, the controversial and much-hyped approach of using stem cells taken from IVF embryos to produce replacement tissue and body parts. 
The replacement neurons were manufactured using powerful stem cells originally sourced from a human embryo created in an in vitro fertilization procedure. Whoa. Yeah. You know, they're straight up doing it, <laughs> like yeah. growing the cells and, and just putting them in brains. Well, and it sounds like that embryo was created for the sake of stem cell harvesting. I don't think yeah. so. I think they're still in the in the legal realm of like, this has to be an embryo that somebody's made for IVF and then abandoned because they've already got their triplets. Like, I, I don't quote me on that, but like, I think they're still not allowed to make embryos for the purposes of IVF cells. I'm going to venture to say it depends on the country. Uh, well, yeah, sure. Yeah. So one bit of info there is that Bayer is headquartered in Germany. Oh. And one of the rules is that it is legal to use existing cell supplies so long as they are created before 2007. Hmm. So the company is manufacturing neurons from original supplies in Wisconsin, which remain widely used. But according to data presented by Henchcliffe and others on August 28th at the International Congress for Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorder in Copenhagen, there are also hints that the added cells had survived and were reducing patient symptoms a year after the treatment. However, because researchers can't see the cells directly once they're in a person's head, they instead track their presence by giving people a radioactive precursor to dopamine and then watching its uptake in their brains in a PET scanner. Mm. To Roger Barker, who studies Parkinson's disease at the University of Cambridge, these results were not so strong, and he says it's still a bit too early to know whether the transplanted cells took hold and repaired the patient's brains. In terms of the legal questions, which we touched on a little bit, Embryonic stem cells were first isolated in 98 at the University of Wisconsin from embryos made in fertility clinics. They're useful to scientists because they can be grown in the lab and, in theory, coax to form any of the 200 or so cell types in the human body, prompting attempts to restore vision, cure diabetes, and reverse spinal cord injury. Hmm. However, there's still no medical treatment based on embryonic stem cells, despite billions of dollars worth of research by hmm. governments and companies over two and a half decades. Blue Rock's study remains one of the key attempts to change that. But Nuria Igabella Font, a Bayer spokesperson, said in an email, all the operations of Blue Rock respect the high ethical and legal standards of the German Embryo Protection Act, given that Blue Rock is not conducting any activities with human embryos. Hmm. Which, you know, PR speak for we're uh -huh. working around some legal requirements well, and whatnot. Well, uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically at this point, they've got the cells and the cells are replicating. So they're like, we don't yeah. need embryos. We have a stem cell line that we just keep using. Exactly. So at least for people who can access this treatment, if it continues to show promising results, I mean, who knows what else we could also right? potentially cure or at least, you know, keep at bay in, in a permanent-ish kind of way. Yep. This is the pilot test. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, we'll stay with the brain. Hmm. As a part Italian who talks with his hands, I was intrigued by this next article. <laughs> it's from Quanta Magazine, The Hidden Brain Connections Between Our Hands and Tongues. Mm. So the author starts that they noticed while threading a needle, they were slightly sticking their tongue out. I'm sure you've done this sure. or something or someone you I mean, know. I'm thinking done of Michael this. Jordan dunking, you know. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. There seems to be a reason for that behavior. This particular interaction's deep evolutionary roots even help explain how our brain can function without conscious effort. So a common explanation for why we stick our tongue out when we perform precision hand movements is something called motor overflow. Mm. In theory, it can take so much cognitive effort to thread a needle or perform other demanding fine motor skills that our brain circuits get swamped and impinge on adjacent circuits, activating them inappropriately. Hmm. 
which can happen after a brain injury or in early childhood, but there are good reasons why that's not the case. That's because the two are controlled by completely different nerves. The tongue is controlled by a cranial nerve, but the hands are controlled by spinal nerves. So nowhere close. Hmm. So the link between hand and tongue is somewhere else in the brain. And there has been research showing that hand and mouth movements are tightly coordinated. In fact, the interplay often improves performance. Martial artists scream short, explosive utterances as they execute the thrusting movements, right? Tennis players often shout Mm -hmm. and yell as they smack the ball. And research shows that coupling hand movement with specific mouth movements, often with vocalization, shortens the reaction time needed to do both. Hmm. That's why you're always cussing when you're troubleshooting hardware. (laughs) There There you go. Exactly. Uh, They found hand movements come in two general forms. Power grip movements, which involve opening and closing a fist, Mm -hmm. and precision hand movements, which involve delicate pinching between the thumb and index finger. These two types of hand movements are often accompanied by different tongue and mouth movements. Hmm. They discover that the sound T-I-H corresponds to making precision hand movements with your fingers, kind of while you're sticking your tongue out when that happens, and ka for power grips. So whenever you need to hold on to something real strong, just yell out, God. I feel like there's got to be like a Klingon phrase that encapsulates both. Lake titty caca. I mean, you're going to be doing so much <laughs> physical movement if you just talk about that lake all the time. <laughs> That's true. And this is how you get diagnosed with Tourette's. That is true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so where did this coordination then come from? And as with a lot of things with the brain, we've got some ideas, but nothing concrete yet. It likely originated in our ancient ancestors' hand-to-mouth feeding movements that developed their language, right? Because spoken language is typically accompanied by automatic hand movements, like pointing and Mm -hmm. grunting at things first. So functional brain imaging studies show that specific tongue and hand movements activate the same region of the brain in the premotor cortex. And in humans, the relevant part of the brain corresponds to a part that is critical for speech. So in short, both the hands and tongue end up firing in the language part of the brain Mm. as well as the motor cortex part. So Italians, keep stereotypically talking with your hands. (laughs) Yeah, it makes you talk better Uh and it makes you stronger in your hands, I guess, if you talk while you work. There you go. There you go. Next link. Next link. All right. This next article is a video from the TED-Ed series dramatically titled The One Thing Stopping Jellyfish from Taking Over. And just to give you an idea of the tone of this piece, it opens with a very formal looking quote on the screen that turns out to be from the surfer turtle in Finding Nemo. Quote, (laughs) Miniman taking on the jellies. You got serious thrill issues, dude. So yeah, the the whole thing is animated. It's very much in the edutainment style of a lot of popular YouTube explainers, but it is nonetheless very informative. So taking over may be a bit of hyperbole, but jellyfish have become a real problem in the last two decades all across the world. Some examples they give are in New Zealand, where the waters can get literally foggy with millions of tiny jellyfish no larger than a grain of pepper, while in Japan, Nomura jellyfish as big as six feet across will swarm small fishing boats and break their nets, eating all the fish they conveniently dragged up for them. They also talk about an event in Sweden where one of the world's largest nuclear reactors was temporarily shut down because of jellyfish clogging the intake pipes, which, if I'm not mistaken, we actually talked about that on this very podcast when it happened. Yep. And, of course, aside from all the inconveniences to humans, 
They have a strong tendency to take over ecosystems, eating either the local fish or the local fish's food until they're the only thing left alive. And the thing that's lacking here is predators, right? Because if something else were eating the jellyfish, then we'd be all circle of life about it and not have a problem. (laughs) And the answer here is going to make you go, ah, of course, because the number one predator of the jellyfish is the sea turtle. Every known species of sea turtle preys on jellyfish at some point in their lives. But in particular, the leatherback sea turtle, which is the giant species that everyone thinks about when they hear the name sea turtle, they just gobble these guys up. A single sea turtle will consume more than 400 kilograms of jellyfish a day, which is roughly the same weight as a grand piano. What? And over their 50-year lifespan, this can translate into over 1,000 metric tons of jellyfish per sea turtle. And keep in mind, the leatherback sea turtle itself averages about 500 kilograms, which is amazing in both directions because, number one, they're eating almost their entire body weight and food every day. But also, a leatherback sea turtle weighs as much as a grand piano. Which is obviously not a problem in the water, but it really puts that whole drag yourself up onto the beach to lay your eggs thing in a whole new light. (laughs) So one of the reasons they have to eat so much of them is that jellyfish are 95% water and very low in calories. Because of this, some smaller species of sea turtle have actually been observed selectively biting off just their prey's protein-rich gonads. But But the leatherback doesn't have time for that. She just swallows them whole. As you might assume, they have also evolved to be immune to the stings of the jellyfish's tentacles. And here, the video takes a little detour on how exactly a jellyfish sting works, which was pretty interesting. Basically, they have cells called nidocytes all along their tentacles, and those cells contain tiny venomous harpoons called nematocysts that literally spring out and then coil back inward again on contact. And they do double duty in both irritating the skin of larger threats like us, but also paralyzing smaller prey so the jellyfish can swallow and digest them. But for the sea turtle, their skin is too scaly and thick to penetrate, and their esophagus is also lined with keratinized spikes, keratin being the same stuff that nails and claws are made out of, and these spikes help shred any jellyfish as soon as it enters the sea turtle's mouth. However, as the video notes, the jellyfish's true defense mechanism is not so much its ability to stay alive, but its ability to reproduce. Almost all jellyfish species have evolved to reproduce both sexually and asexually, depending on the needs of the environment, and they tend to get busy having babies all at once in a coordinated jellyfish bloom. Which is bad enough when it happens once a year in a particular season, but extra jellyfish blooms are now being triggered by things like fertilizer runoff and increasing water temperatures due to climate change. What's more, the jellyfish polyps need a hard surface to cling to until they're mature, and we now know that marine construction and waste has dramatically increased the available surface area where (gasps) these polyps can find a spot to grow. And of course, there's the sea turtles, who we've been actively trying to protect for several decades now, but are still considered under threat or endangered for all seven species. And sometimes it is a little more complicated than just don't kill the turtles, right? Because there are communities in Mexico and Peru where fishing is an absolute necessity to the local economy, but around 100 sea turtles a year are trapped and killed in the nets. One potential solution to this problem that seems to be showing a lot of promise is attaching green LED lights to the gill nets, which the fish are apparently too dumb to pay attention to, but which the sea turtles and other large animals can see and tend to avoid. So that's one solution. It's maybe a little hopeful, but it definitely ends on a cautionary note. You know, when we say, oh, you've got to protect the sea turtles, it's not just because they're cute. They're doing us a real solid out there in the ocean, and we don't want to know what it looks like if they go extinct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Other than 
harvest the jellyfish and eat them ourselves, which I think we've also talked about. Jellyfish come up a lot on this podcast (laughs) because they're going to be a problem. Yeah, they are cool. They are very, very cool. Next link. Next link. All right. From the Smithsonian, scientists treat severe injuries in one eye with stem cells from the other. Woo, good thing some of us have two eyes, Mm. huh? (laughs) Now, this was a very narrow kind of case, but they have treated four patients that had extreme injuries in one eye by transplanting stem cells from each individual's healthy eye. Case-by-case reports of those four patients have shown an improvement in quite a few parameters. For example, Phil Durst, one of the study participants, had suffered a chemical burn and was completely blind with debilitating headaches. But now he can see well enough to drive. Hmm. Wow. And of course, while the small preliminary study did not seek to quantify how effective the treatment was, what we showed is that it is feasible to employ the body's own stem cells and to grow them and place them back in a patient. And it's also safe. Yeah, I mean, that's been the long-term debate always is the whole, like, you know, we're talking about fetal stem cells and people mm-hmm. are basically like, you don't need those because you have stem cells. Use that's your right. Own. Yep. And we've proven it with this particular surgery. So hmm. the new treatment is meant to help people who have something called limbal stem cell deficiency. This condition occurs when stem cells in the limbus, which is a part of the eye around the cornea, fail to repair and regrow the cornea surface after an injury, like from chemical burns or even radiation or toxins. Now, eye injuries can sometimes be treated with cornea transplants, but if patients have this limbal stem cell deficiency, cornea transplant will not work. So the trial enrolled five patients, four of them received transplants. The other participants' biopsy cells didn't grow so successfully in the lab, so their treatment could not be completed. Mm. But for the four transplant recipients, the researchers followed them for 12 months. Vision improved for two of these patients following the procedure, and for two others, the operation prepared them for the cornea transplant that otherwise would not have been possible. So this research is basically a really exciting proof of concept. Yeah, like you said, as long as you have two of something. It'll work for kidneys and lungs and eyes, but if it's your heart, you're in trouble. (laughs) Exactly. This is a pretty narrow scope for now, but around a thousand people each year in the U.S. have damage in one eye but can't have these corneal transplants. So this new treatment is super promising and hopefully, if successful, could be a really good option for complicated cases. Yeah, well, and we've mastered corneal transplants for a long time. So even if you can just get them to where, like, now we can give you a corneal transplant, that's a thing we really know how to do very easily. Mm -hmm. Go science. Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from The Guardian, and it's titled Scent of Eternity. Scientists recreate balms used on ancient Egyptian mummy. Oh, dang. Mm. Wait, B-A-L-M-S? B-A-L-M-B. Yeah, I was thinking like exploding. I mean, you know, it's canon, at least in Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's those old Baghdad batteries. Who knows what they were up to with those things? That's right. Right. (laughs) So museum goers are to be transported back more than 3,500 years in a sniff after researchers studying residues of bombs used in the mummification of a noble woman called Sinetne have not only revealed that many of their ingredients came from outside Egypt, but also reproduced their perfume. Sinetne's mummification balm stands out as one of the most intricate and complex balms from that era, said Barbara Huber, the first author of the research from the Max Planck Institute of Geoanthropology. 
The team says Sinetne lived around 1450 BC and was a wet nurse to Pharaoh Amenhotep II. Hmm. Sinetne's canopic jars, vessels in which the deceased mummified organs were stored, were discovered in a tomb in the Valley of the Kings in 1900 by Howard Carter, the British archaeologist who would later become famous for his role in discovering the tomb of Tutankhamun. Huber and colleagues analyzed six samples of residues of the mummification balms from inside two jars that had once contained Sinetne's lungs and liver, as indicated by hieroglyphic inscriptions. The team found the balms contained a complex mix of ingredients, including fats and oils, beeswax, bitumen, resins from trees of the pine family, a substance called coumarin that has a vanilla-like scent, and benzoic acid, which can be found in many plant sources including cinnamon and cloves. Hmm. Many of the ingredients, they note, would have had to be imported to Egypt. For instance, certain resins, like the larch tree resin, likely came from the northern Mediterranean and central Europe. But not all of the ingredients identified were present in both of the jars, a finding that might suggest the bombs were organ-specific, although the team noted it could be also that they were originally the same but were poorly mixed or had degraded differently. The researchers said few mummies had received the elaborated treatment Sinetne was given, which, with the non-local provenance of many of the ingredients, supported the view that she had a high social standing, a situation already indicated by the site of her burial and her title, Ornament of the King. Huber added that, working with a perfumer, the team had recreated the balm scent, which would be used in an exhibition at the Mosgard Museum in Denmark this autumn. The smell of the balm has been labeled the scent of the eternity. Dr. William Tullett, an expert in sensory history at the University of York, what a cool job that is, yeah. <laughs> uh, who was not involved in the work, said creating smells from history was crucial to understanding the relationship between the past and the present. He says, to our noses, the warm, resinous, pine-like odors of larch might be more reminiscent of cleaning products and the sulfurous scent of bitumen might put us in the mind of asphalt. Mm. But for Egyptians, these smells clearly had a host of other meanings related to spirituality and social status. Well, yeah, and it's not like they were making their houses smell like this. This was a preservation, <laughs> yeah. you know, ritualistic. And then we seal it away in a tomb. So we, it could yeah. smell really bad. And that's OK. That's part of it. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah. hey, y'all want to huff some ancient formaldehyde? Hey. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I mean, kind of. Yes, I do. Right. I would try that. I'd give it I mean, a shot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if I'd huff it, but I would certainly <laughs> waft it aggressively. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, this is from The Bite. Scientists devise a way to power smart contact lenses with human tears. Oh, oh. that feels very sustainable. A team of researchers in Singapore have come up with a tiny micrometer thin battery that can store energy from human tears to power smart contact lenses, which I've seen a prototype of the smart contact lenses in a YouTube rabbit hole I was going down and powering the prototype was kind of an issue that they had in the video I saw. Mm -hmm. And though display tech has shrunk to an incredible degree, batteries have lagged. Mm -hmm. And this presents a serious issue for smart contact lenses, which have generally required an impractical wire leading oh. to an external power source. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Yep, yep, yep. Like yeah, that's that. what I saw in the prototype. It's like, yeah, no, uh, I'm not going to do that anytime <laughs> soon. Cool, but no. Not for me. Yeah, Lee Sok Wu, lead author of a new paper published in the journal Nano Energy, said, quote, this research began with a simple question. 
Could contact lens batteries be recharged with our tears and suffering? No, I'm sorry. I added this. <laughs> he left it off with tears. The new battery relies just on glucose and water to generate electricity, both of which are safe to humans and would be less harmful to the environment when disposed compared to conventional batteries. The battery, which is thinner than a single millimeter, is constructed using biocompatible materials and features a glucose-based coating which can react with sodium and chloride ions to generate electricity and power a circuit. So these two elements are also conveniently found in tears, which means the battery could be topped up using the natural resource of the human body. Heck yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you'd get dry eyes and have to supplement, but still, you put a couple drops in your eyes every few hours and you're good to go with your Terminator vision. <laughs> right. Well, in an experiment involving a simulated eye, so they haven't stuck ah. this on anybody for okay. real yet. Yeah, the battery produced a current of 45 microamperes at a maximum output of 201 microwatts. So not a lot, but enough to power a smart contact lens, the researchers say. Hmm. Before you get too excited, the tech is still new and far from entering the mainstream. Mm -hmm. The tiny battery is limited and can only be charged and discharged 200 times. Hmm. Oh, and then it's gone. And okay. then it's gone, yeah. Well, but, you know, contact lenses, you probably don't want to keep the same ones indefinitely. Sure, it's just a question of how expensive is it to replace them after yeah. 200 days. And right now it would be, yeah, absurdly expensive. Right, but, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Though the team is currently, uh, sorry, working oh. with contact lens companies <laughs> to eventually bring it to market. I think we'll yeah. see it eventually. And that's kind of where it leaves us. But I think they're setting their sights too narrow. I did it again. <laughs> <laughs> A battery that can work off sugar and water? Like, there's got to be some reason that doesn't work on scale. Yeah, there's yeah. uses for that. Yeah, because that seems way safer than cobalt and lithium mining. Mm -hmm. and I don't know. I'm not a chemist, but I would say be on the lookout in the near possible future for Apple's eye contacts. Well, I mean, you got to admit, they look a lot less nerdy than Google Glass did. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the, the consent issues with contact lenses that mm -hmm. are less detectable as being potential recording devices, that'll be very interesting. Yeah. The spies are probably mm. like, ooh, hey now. Hey. Well, and speaking of aesthetics, like if you can see it in this person's eye, maybe your battery died a long time ago, but you're still wearing it to look cool, right? You got like the cybernetic looking eyeball and everybody thinks you're recording them all the time, so they're polite to you, which might have its or, own benefits. <laughs> yeah, more than likely, you just couldn't pay the monthly service fee. Oh, so got right, off, right. It's going to be a subscription. You don't actually own it. Yeah. You don't own anything. It. Right. No, you don't own anything anymore. Yeah. I <laughs> am imagining like an alternate future or history where we figured out glucose water batteries for everything and all of our technology is just really wet. <laughs> <laughs> and tasty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm just over here licking my laptop in between thoughts like. <laughs> we evolve long tongues like lizards just to make sure we refuel regularly i'm into this, exactly. this future rules sounds fun <laughs> anyways anyway next link next link this article comes to us from mashable.com it's just a quick little tiny tiny little update UFO videos newly declassified now live at this <gasps> Pentagon website. Ruh -roh. Oh, <laughs> we can go see them yeah. for ourselves. Yeah, What's you the can... Pentagon website? So it is AARO.MIL, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office website. Okay. And dot you know, com? Dot... Uh, there's no way I'm writing that down. 
Yeah, it's ro.mil. Okay, I thought it was that whole thing. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> like, that's the official title of the office, but the website is literally just aaro.mil. Okay. So, on Thursday, the U.S. Defense Department announced the launch of this slightly dystopian sounding all domain anomaly resolution office website. <laughs> Essentially, one handy place to release newly declassified videos and information relating to unidentified anomalous phenomena, UAP, which are essentially UFOs to us cool kids. Right, right. In a nutshell, any UFO slash UAP info that gets declassified will appear there. The site already contains a number of official UAP videos from U.S. Navy jet crew encounters to footage captured from the cockpit of a fighter jet. It's worth noting that there are different categories for the videos uploaded on the site. Some of them are unresolved, meaning the AARO doesn't have an explanation for them yet. Others are unclassified but have possible explanations, such as the object likely is a commercial aircraft and that the trailing cavitation is a sensor artifact resultant of video compression. That's a quote. Hmm. A statement from the director, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, on the site reads, Our team of experts is leading the U.S. government's efforts to address unidentified anomalous phenomena using a rigorous scientific framework and a data-driven approach. What you didn't see was him putting experts in air quotes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he continues uh, air quoting with his fingers behind the quote the entire time. Uh, since its establishment in July 2022, Arrow has taken important steps to improve data collection, standardize reporting requirements, and mitigate the potential threats to safety and security posed by UAP. We look forward to using the site to regularly update the public about Arrow's work and findings and to provide a mechanism for UAP reporting. This new website is part of a trend for the U.S. government, which has suddenly decided to start talking more to the public about UFOs. A couple of months back, NASA televised a public meeting of its UAP team, which includes former astronaut Scott Kelly as a show of transparency. And last year, the organization also committed to a nine-month study of UFOs. And that's about it. Just a really short one, but pretty interesting and pretty cool that the government is now like, yeah, OK, let's yeah. talk about these UFOs finally or okay. UAPs. Well, or some kind of like centralized repository, we can say at least this is a government website because you can also fake mm. stuff now with video AI yeah. to the point where no one's going to trust anything. So at least they're saying, yeah. look, we're saying what's on this site is at least real video. We can't say what Which it is. Which can now get but... spun into AI to create who knows sure. how much kind of content. Exactly. Yeah, I have a theory still <laughs> mm -hmm, that it is still our tech. Right, right. We're just showing it off. We're going like, nah, 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 China. <laughs> well, in, in, okay. In a way, yes, but also in a way, it would be in our best interest to still keep that stuff secret and mm -hmm. let the public know that, hey, maybe that's, yeah, maybe that is alien. So that when we are flying these things over China and Russia... We can still have that plausible deniability. <laughs> of, right. No, it's just aliens. Look, see, we're being transparent over here. Mm -hmm. However, at the same time, I don't know. I'm just spitballing. That's just as much conspiracy theory as anything else. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. absolutely. The government mm, yeah. is keeping secret tech versus there are aliens. Those are kind of on equal footing. <laughs> they, are. they are. I they mean, are. I have just as much proof. Yeah, yeah I like way. to be inclusive. I think it's everything all at once. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually lean more towards that really, too. The military mm -hmm. can be ruthless and space is big. It's both of those things. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include 
the golf ball paradox, why people believe their own lies, and what can archaeology tell us about the Druids' dark arts. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.